It's good to be with y'all. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here at Frontline Church, and we are continuing our Advent series. Uh, I want to pray for you, you pray for me, and then we're going to dive into this text that Carol read so, so well. So let's pray with one another, for one another, together. Heavenly Father, I'm just really aware right now of, uh, in my longing and in my celebration, I'm in danger of celebrating in a, in a way that is far too weak in light of the truth that's before me. And my longings are far too small in light of who you are and what you're going to do. And so for my own heart and for my friends who I suspect are a lot like me in, in their celebration and, and their longing, would you help us as we look at Jesus, who you are and what you've done and what we can look back to in hope and look forward to in hope? what we can look back to in faith and forward to in faith, would you help us celebrate in a deeper way? And would you meet us in our longings that they would, they would be adequate, that we would long for things that are only possible in you? We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said. Amen. Amen. Has anybody gone just full throttle on Christmas music yet? I know that like Pastor Rex, like as soon as it just drops under 100 in Oklahoma, he starts the Christmas playlists. Some of you are like that. I generally like, a, like the, the right way. I wait till after Thanksgiving and then we rock it in our house. And this year I'm even enjoying stuff that like I ought not enjoy. Like even the Christmas shoes is getting to me, you know? It's, it's an artifact of getting older, but I was, I was struck by the fact that like, it changes every year, but I think this year, the front runner for my favorite Christmas song is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I was talking about it with my, my friend, Andrew. It's like a freight train of a Christmas song, <laughs> but it is, it is powerful. It is epic. It's climactic. It's rich in theology. I mean, it's just like, let's just revisit it for a minute together, right? Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. And even as I was listening to that a few days ago, I was, I was struck by something that I think we all, if we slow down, can be struck by as, as we long in this moment and as we celebrate in this moment. What does it mean to sing, mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die, when death continues to happen all around us, personally and, and as a community? Just yesterday, on Saturday, yesterday, two sisters in this church, two women who are both leaders in this church, both were attending the funeral of their fathers this week, both of their fathers passed away in their sleep. And I spoke with a dear friend of mine, who, one of these men who passed away was his father-in-law, and he just talked about his, his final day. I found out his, his father-in-law had passed, and I called him, and he, he was just sharing with me what this last day of his father-in-law's life looked like. And they were on family vacation at the beach together. All the family, all the clan was together. And the day with this grandfather who passed away began with football on the beach with his grandchildren. 
It, it ended with a, a rich meal together, eating just delicious food and having rich conversation. And he, he went to sleep in joy, and his daughter went to wake him up in the morning and found that as he perfectly lay asleep, he had passed away. And like, if I'm going to script how I want to go, I want to I go like that, right? That seems like an ideal death. But what was interesting in my conversation with my dear friend as he spoke about his father-in-law is even in light of what seemed like an ideal death in a way that we would all want to go, a day loving and, and receiving love from the ones closest to us, enjoying the rich gifts of creation, going away what seems to be in a painless way and waking up in the very presence of our Lord, that even in that so-called ideal death, that the family is, is reeling at the hurt and the loss and the injustice and the wrongness of not being with this person that they love so much. I've been reading this book this season called Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ by Fleming Rutledge. And she, she writes this, which um, I marked earlier this week, and it just seems so appropriate, something that we can relate to. She writes, in my ministry, I've learned to recognize the look, the feel, the smell of death. I've been present with people at the time of death many times and have never become immune to the change that comes over the body. The New Testament refers to death as an enemy. Even in the case of what we call a merciful death, there's still a horrible indignity, a fearsome intrusiveness about death that causes us to feel its presence as a hostile, invading power that robs the human being of everything it was meant to be. She goes on to say, nebulous or hazy, foggy, cloudy, nebulous messages about some sort of religious hope for an afterlife do not have the power to stare down the stark ugliness of death. She's standing on truth that Paul wrote in, in the book that we've been going through as a church, 1 Corinthians, where in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that, that the last enemy of Jesus is death. And so many of us are going through present circumstances. I'm just aware of one of the pastors of this church. Many of us in this moment are, are dealing with coming face to face with God's last enemy death. And, and we have a present pain of facing loss. And yet many more of us, I, I dare say all of us, if we're just old enough or, or this season revisiting pain and loss of our past, that the holidays have a, a unique way of unearthing and bringing to the forefront of our hearts. There's something about this season that even in and especially in this season, the pain of the death of those that we've loved and that have loved us seems incredibly real and fresh. And I suspect that much of the busyness that we self-impose this time of year is is at least in part like an unconscious strategy to distract us and keep us always on the go because if we slow down and remember and feel some pain that is in our hearts, we're aware of that. We, we're avoiding that. We'd rather not remember. 
And that's just a cultural reality, right? How, how we in this present moment, in this age, in our city at this time, deal with death is primarily through denial. It doesn't take a study to tell us, although there have been studies that have been done that tell us that the majority of Americans don't think about their own death at all, regardless of their age. In, in my readings this week, I came across uh, an app. I don't remember the name of it, but the app is pretty simple. It just gives you five random prompts a day telling you that someday you're going to die. <laughs> and the designer of that app, his hope is that that's somehow going to be helpful to you and lead you to a greater happiness. But I, I would, you know, just put out there that just perhaps that actually to consider death, if you don't truly know the meaning of life and truly have a view of what death means, that considering death five times a day or any amount of times a day isn't going to be helpful. It can actually just be hurtful. It can lead you into a, a hedonism of just living for yourself or a despair and fear of what's coming. But Paul here in this text is giving a gift to a church that needs to to view death rightly, needs to view life rightly. So here's the question. If the claims of Christmas are true, if Jesus was born so that death would die, how do we view the death that's around us that we're often aware of in a painful way, in a tangible way, this season, when we look around the table and we remember people that were there in years past that aren't with us now, when we're aware of ways that because of the curse and because of our sin, the world is not as it's, as it's meant to be, what do we do with that? What does Christmas speak to that? Is it unrealistic or is it sentimental? Is it merely symbolic or is there something to the claims of Christmas? And this is where Advent comes in, to gain insight, to get answers, to find help. We can't embrace Advent. And if you're like me, and you grew up in a church tradition that, that didn't recognize or celebrate Advent, you might have some questions. Advent comes from a Latin word that, that is Adventus. It means coming or arrival. And historically, as the church has lived out and practiced the season of Advent leading up to Christmas to prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas... It, it really involves two things. We're invited in Advent to do two things, to hold on to two things. And the first is that we would look back, that we would look back in faith-filled remembrance and celebration of the first coming of the Son of God, the birth of Jesus. And we tend to do that really well as a, as a church. But what we're invited to in Advent doesn't just stop there. We're actually invited to take hold also, not just of, of a faith-filled celebration of the first coming of the Son of God, but we're invited to embrace in Advent a, a, a looking ahead in hope and longing and anticipation and expectation of the second coming of the Son of God. By, by a show of hands, who, what, what families in here practice, um, you know, the, the, the kind of cheat of letting your children open one gift Christmas Eve? Just, just 
punt on delayed gratification, right? Yeah, I love this. We don't do this as a family. I want to start this year. So the news to my kids. I like this, and this is, this is why, right? When you do allow your children to open a gift on Christmas Eve, for those that, that practice this, just so you can help me as I'm going to do it this year, like, do you give them the best gift Christmas Eve? No. No, that would be crazy, right? You give them a good gift, but you don't give them the best gift, and they, they get a, a, a good gift Christmas Eve, but then that's just a taste of what's to come. And they have longing and hope and joy as to what they will experience on Christmas morning. Well, I bring this up because that time between those two gifts, just think about it. Put yourself in, in, in the shoes of that child that's going to open a good gift Christmas Eve and then filled with hope know they're going to open even better gifts Christmas morning, and you put yourself in their shoes as it relates to the time between those two gifts. They've received something, and then they're looking forward to receiving even more. That's just a, a helpful picture of Advent. It's a helpful picture of even the whole Christian life. Karl Barth said this in his, his uh, book, Church Dogmatics. He says, what other time of season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? We're called to hold on to the truth and celebrate the gift that we've received, the birth of the Son of God. And then we are holding on to the hope that we will celebrate greater gifts to come because Jesus will come again. So, so to help us hold these truths, to help us celebrate and to long in these next few weeks, we're, we're not going to be focusing as we historically have as a church on shepherds and angels and wise men or, or a baby in a manger. And those are amazing and wonderful things that are worth celebrating. But we're going to, this Advent season, spend some time intentionally focusing on the second coming of Jesus. And that might seem strange. In a real way, it seems strange to me, but it's, it's, it's helpful to our hearts. And it's, it's also kind of tapping into a historic approach to this season that the church has taken that really does help prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas in a way that we really ought so today, we're going to focus on the second coming of Jesus as it relates to the resurrection of the dead. What does the first coming of Jesus and his second coming mean for our life and our view of death? And that's why it's helpful to look at Paul's words here to the church in Thessalonica. See, this church was celebrating what Jesus had done, but they were facing in a, in a real heavy way grief and experiencing the pain of losing people that they love to death. And Paul's going to remind them of, of two things that, that in Christ they can look forward to. And we're going to be reminded of those two things that will help us in our longing this season. So the first thing, that we need to see that Paul's going to hold up before us, that we can long for when we look in hope to the second coming, the first thing is resurrection power. Paul writes this in verse 13. Again. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
Paul's saying, I don't want you to be like driftwood who's cast to and fro in your grief of of the death of those that you love, that have loved you. I want you to be anchored to the rock and the truth of Christ Jesus that you are invited. You, You must grieve, but you don't grieve in despair and bitterness. You grieve anchored in hope. You stand on the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so as you hold your grief, you're not shaken but you're on the solid ground of Christ Jesus. I do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. See, when Paul says asleep, he's not saying that Christians who died are in some sleep state or some place where they're not conscious of the very presence of of God. Sleep here is a metaphor to suggest a, a physical condition, and it's, it's a hint that there's going to be a time where a waking up is going to happen, a rising is going to happen. See, this church has questions that we as a church might have, which is what happens to a Christian when we die? Are we just asleep? And the answer biblically is no. Scripture gives us some insight, specifically the Apostle Paul. He talks about this often. When he was in house arrest in Rome and he's writing to uh, the Philippian church and he expects and anticipates really in any moment he might be executed, he writes to them in, in chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, and he says this about his life and his death. He says, for me... For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul's saying, hey, Christians, Life is good. It's to be cherished. Even, Paul is saying, a man who's experiencing suffering and hardship and persecution, who's living a hard life at the moment, he's saying even when life is hard, it's to be lived out for the glory of God and for the good of others. Life is a gift. And yet for Christians, Paul is saying, death is better because it means we get to be with Jesus Christ. When we die, we depart from our bodies and and our bodies are planted in the ground like seeds waiting to bloom as we hold on in hope for what's to come. And our souls go immediately to be in the presence of Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus himself to the thief on the cross. Jesus is on the cross, a thief is next to him, and the thief, knowing that his death is imminent, what does he say? He says, Jesus, he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, knowing that, that his death is moments away, he says to this, this man, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that promise of Jesus is true for all of us who are in Christ. For believers, our death is a homecoming, and our our souls, although our bodies are laid in the ground, our souls are with Christ in peace, as we focus on today, this Advent, in perfect peace. We're at home with the Lord. But that's not the end of the story, because as we are with Jesus in his presence, we're waiting for his homecoming. When Jesus comes a second time, those dead in Christ receive new physical resurrected bodies. 
Look at what Paul goes on to write in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So at Christmas, we celebrate the, the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God being born of a virgin and we celebrate his new life on earth. But, but that celebration transcends just his new life because everything about who Jesus is is a celebration of new life and rebirth for the entire world. All of Jesus' life was about bringing life. He said so again and again. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Speaking to a friend who is mourning the loss of a little brother who he was about to raise from the dead, Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. All of Jesus' life and ministry was about bringing life, and you see that in everything he does. Think about his miracles. When when he takes a, a, a few fish and a few loaves and he feeds an entire festival that has surrounded him to hear his word. He's nourishing, he's giving life. When he heals the sick, when there were people who had no hope of healing and restoration through a touch and sometimes even a word, Jesus brings life restored. Even like on a soul level, when he comes across, uh, comes upon outcasts like the woman at the well or Zacchaeus up in that tree, he moves towards them in their loneliness and isolation and he brings the life of love and community. And above all, every time Jesus encounters death in his ministry, there's not a single death that he did not personally encounter that he didn't ruin. A, a funeral of a, a young man, his friend Zacchaeus, a sick young girl. Every time he ruins that death and he brings resurrection life. And he does that with every death he encounters but his own. The Gospels tell us that Jesus died 3 p.m. 2,000 years ago. And it was a, a very public death. Up on a hill outside of Jerusalem, up on a cross, Loved ones were watching. Enemies were watching. Religious leaders were mocking him, saying, hey, he saved others. He can't even save himself. Why don't you come down if you're so strong, if you're such a savior? And he could have come down, but he perfectly obeyed his father, and he stayed, and he died. And to ensure he was dead, a professional killer, a Roman soldier stabbed him in the side. A Roman executioner confirmed his death. He was prepared for burial, wrapped tightly, laid in a tomb. But the historical account doesn't stop there because Jesus didn't stop there. The overwhelming testimony of the Gospels, the New Testament, the overwhelming testimony of the lives of his disciples who were marked by fear, but after his resurrection had death-defying boldness and were, were so dead set on believing Jesus was alive, they gave their life. 
the birth and the explosive growth of the Christian church that's still growing. All of this testifies that Jesus didn't end there in that tomb. After three days, he rose. He hung out and appeared over 40 days to not just his disciples, but hundreds of people. He ate with them. He was really alive. There is nothing or no one more alive than Jesus. All his life and ministry are about bringing life, and that's not just about his first coming and his ministry and his resurrection, but it also has everything to do with his second coming. In Revelation, John describes Jesus as the firstborn from among the dead. See, his resurrection is also ours, Scripture promises, that his defeat of death is also ours. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So the Bible promises that when Jesus returns again, when he comes a second time, the bodies of his followers who have passed to death will be raised and glorified and united with our souls to never die again. And this has like real application for us that means beautiful things as we not just hold on to the celebration that he came again, but we hold on to the the hope and the longing that he will come again. Like, As a 41-year-old, this is better and better news to me every day because I just get out of bed with injuries that don't even make sense, right? I'm just like, why does that hurt? I didn't do anything, right? I work out, and I'm not able to walk the same for three days, right? And so to to hear the, the real physical implications that our failing bodies, the promise of resurrection holds out that every day that the older you get, the, the better news this is, that we are growing closer and getting closer to new resurrected bodies. One theologian, one theologian put it this way. He said, our bodies now compared to the bodies that we will receive are resurrected bodies in Christ Jesus. It's like comparing an acorn to an oak tree. A pastor and theologian, uh, uh, um, Andrew Wilson, who wrote that book that we have featured in our, our resource table, he just said, look, when I consider the Jesus' body and his resurrected body and how he could go into locked rooms but also hang out with his friends and eat barbecue on a beach and, and people perceived him in his glory, and I know that he's actually the firstborn from among the dead, and that's what we have to look forward to. I get really excited about that. But there aren't just real physical implications for what we have to look forward to, but real spiritual application for how we live now. The resurrection means that we don't have to hoard our lives for selfish gain. Like, YOLO isn't just a lame, like, acronym for millennials. It's untrue if you're in Christ. We don't only live once. We're going to have 10,000 lifetimes in Christ Jesus and all the more. We don't have to hoard our life. We don't have to have some fearful bucket list. We don't have to lean into some hedonism that we have to experience. All life is now and eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, but we can actually live in such a way that is generous to others and glorifies Jesus and we can give our stuff away and our energy away and our love away and all of our reasons sources because we know that that we have a future and a hope and real bodies that we will receive in a real new heaven and a real new earth with a real living king that we will live under his rule for all eternity. What do we have to hoard when all is ours in Christ Jesus? 
The second thing we're invited to look that Paul calls us to, to raise our eyes and hope towards is that we don't just receive resurrection power, but we get to receive our king. Receiving our king. I was talking to Paul and Noah Gable in our first service, and they were talking about how much they love that song that, that we sing, Joy to the World. And they reminded me that that song actually, as Isaac Watts wrote it, wasn't written about Christmas. It wasn't written about the first coming. It was actually written about the second coming, coming but we rightfully apply it to the first coming. It's a great Christmas song, but, but it's even richer when we realize, hey, when we say, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. That is a, a beautiful second coming longing song. At the second coming, Christians will sing again, let earth receive her king. Notice what Paul says in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, notice what's happening here, right? Jesus is headed where? To earth from heaven, right? This is, not about, this is not a verse about the church being taken from earth to Jesus, but a verse about Jesus coming to earth to raise his church in resurrection power. See, what Paul is doing here is he's using the image that, that these people in this church in Thessalonica and all ancient people would be really familiar with. He's, he's painting a picture of a, a Roman military processional. Here's actually an image of some ancient art called the Triumph of Titus, a ruler in Rome. And this is a picture of what Paul's painting here, right? You have a ruler who's coming back victoriously to his city. And he, he would return home after a military campaign where he'd been victorious and he'd be greeted by this processional. What you see in the upper right-hand corner of that picture is a, a, uh, a figure with wings. That's a personification of victory who's crowning this king, right? And so this is the, the picture that Paul is painting for us as it relates to the second coming of Jesus. That a trumpet blasts and this king arrives and what would happen in antiquity is that if you are a citizen of the city and your king's away waging war and fighting a battle for your protection, for your benefit, for, for, for the good of the kingdom, that there would be a day that you didn't anticipate, you would know, but you would hear beautiful music. You would hear the sound of victory and you would know by the trumpet blast that the king is returning in victory. You would be able to see him coming and the whole city, all those loyal who loved the king would rush out to, to welcome him, to honor him, to bless him, to greet him, and to celebrate his victory. And there would just be this epic parade, and the king would come in, followed by his soldiers, and followed by the, his, his wealth and riches of his conquest. And then lastly, his enemies that he had conquered would be in chains at the end. This is a cosmic picture, right, that's being painted, Paul's using, as of, of the victorious return, the epic celebration of the second coming of Jesus. When Christ returns, it will be the most epic celebration of all time. Paul talks about it this way again in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. He writes, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, and we shall all be changed. 
that those who, who know by God's grace know Jesus as our king, who have bowed the knee to him, who, who celebrate his first coming and long for his second coming, that one day the best surprise party in all of history will occur when we hear that trumpet and Jesus returns and we go up to greet him and we have the, we have the grace and get to experience the glory of ushering him in to his eternal reign over a new heavens and a new earth. And at that moment, the Bible tells us that the last enemy at the end of that processional who will be in change is sin and Satan and death. And death's sting will be rendered powerless. And at, at that surprise party, at that victory march, the final nail in the coffin of death will be hammered in. And we have an epic celebration to look forward to as the last enemy is finally and fully defeated. So that's why we can, more than can, but we must sing things like, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lay his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. We join with them in proclaiming glory to the newborn king. So just practically, where do we go from here? There's, there's two things that are true, I think, for each of us in this room. In, in the coming days, in the next month, each and every one of us are going to experience and feel some joy. And, and we need to embrace that. Jesus has come. It's, it's an epic celebration. Joy this season should be pursued. It should be embraced. It's rooted in the faith of what has happened. Jesus has come. It's, it's, it's looking forward to the, and it's just a foretaste of what will happen, that Jesus will come again. That we've received gifts, praise God, and we're waiting to receive even bigger gifts. But what's also true is that over this next month, that if we slow down, each and every one of us are going to feel pain and experience loss. And, and even and especially this season, we're going to sense and know the world is not as it should be. My charge to you is don't block that out. Don't sweep that feeling under the rug. Let it come. Consider it. Think it over. Because the, the grief there can be grief and hope if we're in Christ Jesus. That pain can direct us to truth that's truly wonderful. See, that grief and pain, it reminds us that we're waiting, that we're longing for a second coming, that in Christ, this is not all there is. Things are not as they should be. May we celebrate now and keep our hearts aimed on eternity. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we simply pray that you would help us as we ought in a way that, that glorifies you and in a way that we get to experience rich joy, that we would, as a church, as a family, as individuals, celebrate the birth of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we also pray that you would help, help, live a, help, help, help us live just kind of standing in, in hope in ways that we never have before. 
that you would bring our hearts and our minds and our focus more often than, than we have ever experienced to the, to the longing that we, yes, want to celebrate that, Jesus, you have come, but we want to pray that you would come again and come soon. That we would pray in, in more literal ways, Jesus, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Help us in all these things, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. God's people said.